Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's June 15th, 1984. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So this was the day that the first episode of Blackadder, or The Blackadder as it was originally known, aired on the BBC. And considering how much of an iconic British comedy it would go on to be, the first series is very different and I think most fans would agree that it's relatively underwhelming it's got most of the same cast that the show we're going to have led by Rowan Atkinson who co-wrote it with Richard Curtis but the results are not what you might expect if you're only familiar with the later series well I think part of the problem is it's set in 1484 I mean that strikes me now looking back at it as a big stretch for a mainstream comedy because I think if you haven't studied history at university you know less about it to poke fun at it. So like with the later Blackadder series, you know, so Blackadder 2 is set in the era of Queen Elizabeth I, or Blackadder III is the kind of Regency fop being epitomised by Hugh Laurie very amusingly. All of that I think people understand, but the Blackadder, medieval Britain, like all you really know is they had funny beards and funny tights and funny (laughs) haircuts. It's one of those blank areas, I think, of history, isn't it? But the funny thing is that actually the pilot episode, which was never broadcast, didn't even make room for the era-hopping thing that followed as the, the show went on because it wasn't set in any time period and only between the pilot and the the Blackadder coming out did they go, actually, we need to position it and they put it in the 1480s. Fortunately, it was a black hole that no one really knew about, so you could do anything. (laughs) The other thing that was different about the unaired pilot was that it was much funnier and much more similar to the style of humour that would be in subsequent series. Was it? Well, I don't know how familiar you are with the first series of Blackadder, but the popular wisdom is that it's A, it's not very good, and B, that the characterisation, especially of Blackadder, is completely different. Like, he comes across as being, like, really weak and runty and awkward. I would back the popular wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, do you know what? I've never watched it. The, the other series of Blackadder were like big staples growing up. Yeah, because they're brilliant. I mean, we should say for the record, obviously, for simplicity's sake, let's refer to them as Blackadder 2, 3 and 4. Obviously, those are amongst the finest British sitcoms ever written. They're incredible and the cast are amazing and they're almost flawless. But it is true, isn't it, that Blackadder 1, the Blackadder, is I go as far to say bad. I was totally stunned by how juvenile and slapdash it seemed. I was absolutely stunned to learn that it had a million pound budget because it looks like it looks like it's being put on as a student review or something. <laughs> well, and it made way for what became an old jibe at the BBC that a series looks like a million dollars but actually cost a million quid. <laughs> and that's certainly the case in with the Blackadder that you know they went on location, they filmed it in castles, mm. they had like proper costumes and all of that. And yet the scripts are a bit underbaked and some of the good things that are discovered later on, like the sort of character of Blackadder that then runs through the subsequent series. And Percy and Baldrick, you know, who aren't really that clearly delineated here either. 
Yeah, and in that first series, for example, Baldrick, who goes on to be his sidekick, is the smarter one of the pair of them. And meanwhile, the Black Adder is a bit snivelling and rubbish, and uh, you know, and and has that sort of inverted what becomes inverted. So Baldrick is stupid, and and uh, and he's wise. Um, but yeah, that at the start, they're flipped. And, and the story behind it is weird because you, you could easily go in thinking, oh, they didn't really draw the characters out properly and then they worked out how to make them funnier. But because there is this unaired pilot where Blackadder is more sardonic and dry and Baldrick is the, the stupid one, mm. it, kind of, it makes you think, how on earth did they get away from the winning formula? And in subsequent interviews, Richard Curtis, who co-wrote all four series of Blackadder, has subsequently said that they wanted the Blackadder character to be more complicated, like that they wanted to develop him over time. But I think that might actually be smoothing over what really happened, because it sort of sounds like nobody really knew exactly how to do it. And Rowan Atkinson said afterwards that they were about to start filming, and he realised he hadn't even worked out what kind of voice he was going to be doing. It does speak to, I think, the incredible success that Rowan Atkinson working with Richard Curtis in fact had had up to that point you know he was a rock star in comedy terms and still really young still in his 20s from not the nine o'clock news Mm. which finished airing in this year of 1983 and simultaneously to being on telly and being huge there he'd done this massive national stage tour with Richard Curtis uh, in which Curtis was kind of like his comic foil which he then went on to dramatize in the tall guy the Jeff Goldblum part and it was kind of like I think There's an element of ego where Rowan Atkinson genuinely thought, because people said it to him all the time, you don't need a brilliant script, you just go on stage and you're just funny. You've got funny bones. Everything about you is funny. The moment you come on stage, we all want to laugh. And of course he is, like one of the great clowns in British comedy. Mm. But actually, when he's reading a script, he kind of does need a good script. Like he does two things. He plays idiot and he plays genius. Mm. But the problem with the Blackadder is he's trying to do both. Yeah, and you can't really improvise when it's set in, you know, the 1480s. You can't really go off and do your own thing, can you? Like, you really do have to have it be grounded in some kind of historical context. But also this first series does seem a bit of a weird mishmash, this high-minded... You could almost imagine, like, the pitch that they came into the BBC with and they were like, okay, so it's going to, like, fuse Shakespearean elements and we're going to even have some Shakespearean dialogue from time to time. The, The opening is so portentous as well. It takes a good few minutes to actually get into anything that even resembles comedy because it, the first episode is framed as a documentary telling an untold history of where Richard III is inadvertently killed by Blackadder and then Blackadder's father becomes Richard IV. And, and, and it actually takes a good few minutes before they even start trying to make you mm. laugh. Mm-hmm. It's that sort of Oxbridge privilege thing of kind of like, just trust us, we're cleverer than you. Like We've mm. read lots of books, so we're going to make some historical jokes and it doesn't matter if you don't get them or you'll believe that they're coming from the right place because we're clever. And that mm. kind of permeates through it as well, doesn't it? Like you'd almost need the footnotes to get the jokes. Yeah, it's a little bit smug. And I have to say, re-watching in recent years, even though I do still enjoy it because I watched it a lot growing up, I can see that through the whole show, to be honest. There no, is, no, no. Heresy is dripping quiet. with a bit of sadness. No, no. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. It is a bit but, self-referentially but, clever. Who is it that did, there was somebody who did a sort of just a throwaway joke about being, oh, I'm the cleverer than the fox who studied fox studies at the University of... As cunning fox. as a fox who's just yeah, been yeah, made yeah. professor of cunning at Oxford University, yes. Yes. <laughs> One of the great lines of British that comes. What about it? Yes, no, I'm saying that there's someone, I can't remember who it is now. As happy as a Frenchman who, who's just discovered a pair of self-removing trousers. That kind of thing. There's like a comedian <laughs> who basically just did a few takeoff lines in that style and you're like, yeah, it is a bit lame when you put it like that. 
No, because yeah, they created it, that. It's very yeah, easy exactly. to we're, be smug about yeah, it now. Once we're super familiar with it, then you can start to, you know, just do it over and over again and we can all laugh about the fact that we all get it because we've seen it a million times. But, um, <laughs> but at the time, it was innovative. It is worth remembering that for this era and for about 10 years afterwards, all of these guys were called alternative comedians, right? That's what mm. this entire generation of comics were called. And... Being described as such for that long, I wonder if internally they almost felt themselves that their shows had to be somehow edgy and unexpected and different mm. because they were the alternative mm. comedians. Whereas actually, like The Blackadder, it might as well be a carry-on movie. It's basically carry-on medieval, yeah. isn't it? It could have yeah. the two Ronnies in it. It is just, let's put on some silly beards and tights and jape around, which is absolutely mainstream BBC One comedy, <laughs> but it's like they won't allow themselves to do that. It's also astonishing to think of Rowan Atkinson as being an alternative comedian now that he has also been Mr Bean, you know. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> the, the scale of Mr Bean is so huge, and I was thinking about that as well in relation to this, which is one of the, the sort of great comedies that he's known for, but it's, it's always going to be secondary now to Mr. Bean, which as of October 2018 received YouTube's diamond play button for surpassing 10 million subscribers, which is amazing in itself. It's among the most watched YouTube channels in the world with like more than 6 billion plays. Mm. It's just an enormous show and big as Blackadder has become, Mr. Bean is kind of Rowan Atkinson and he's not alternative anymore. And so the Blackadder met with relatively lukewarm reviews at the time and it wasn't clear whether it was going to be renewed. And then Michael Grade, who was a BBC One controller at the time, agreed to commission a second series on condition that there was a massively reduced budget and everything was going to be filmed in studio, which in a way contributed to the kind of iconic look of Blackadder. So he, I think he inadvertently kind of set the tone for the success. I think the fact that it won an international Emmy in 1983 might have swayed Michael Grade's mind, though, because, you know, <laughs> you're always going to have an eye on that awards cabinet, aren't you? And although I don't think it deserved that award, it's kind of nice, isn't it, to think that if they weren't given another chance to make it better, we never would have had the rest of Blackadder. And how many other shows that had slightly underwhelming first series, uh, you know, were cancelled before they got the chance to get amazing? You think that we should just go around handing out Emmys to underwhelming programs on the off chance that the right controller will see it and renew the series in case it gets good. I think basically if you're not enjoying the podcast now, check back in six months. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Don't judge too early. Tomorrow. There was so much human misery. It's easy to see how mm. the average person just didn't have the emotional energy to worry about animals. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Part of the ACAST Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.